Hello, and welcome to another episode of AgTech So What, brought to you by Tenacious Ventures. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. 2023 has been a year of both investing and fundraising for us here at Tenacious Ventures. And sitting on both sides of the table has made it clear just how much of the investing world is stuck in a black box, which sucks because that opacity can be a huge barrier to unlocking more solutions. And unfortunately, this is especially true in spaces like agri-food, where venture funding hasn't been a long-standing part of the ecosystem. So that's why we've decided to shine a little more light in the investment box by asking two very qualified LPs or limited partners, so investors who invest in funds, to join us for a conversation about how their jobs work. Today, we're sitting down with Eliza Jackson from MacDoc Ventures, a single family office based out of Sydney and London. MacDoc is interested in B2B SaaS plays in a number of verticals, including ag, where Eliza has conviction that problems from sustainability to food waste can be addressed with software. The family office also owns agricultural properties, which is another reason why they're interested in and have expertise to share around ag tech. We're also joined by Sarah Balawider from Builders Vision, which is Lucas Walton's venture platform, a group particularly focused on allocating capital to climate solutions, specifically in sustainable food nag, renewable energy, and oceans. Sarah runs the Impact First Food Nag portfolio, which is focused on supporting the adoption of technology to advance sustainability goals, and tech is a critical aspect. Sarah and Eliza took different paths to reaching somewhat similar seats in their two organizations, and I wanted to pick their brains today on how they develop their strategies and perspectives, starting with how they've prioritized direct investing in startups versus investing in ag tech funds. Here's Sarah. For our Impact First Food and Ag portfolio, we are very intentional about how we think about allocating to funds versus directs and where we think it's best appropriate to allocate to expert GPs. For us, we really focus on this like system friction approach. And so if we're investing directly into a portfolio company, either with an equity check or, or a debt facility, there has to be a clear, compelling rationale of how they are alleviating a system friction rather than maybe a hard tech or just ag tech in general. And where there is a more generalist approach, we lean into our fund managers to provide that expertise. And so for us, it's really trying to get really nuanced on what are we trying to achieve in the marketplace that helps move the needle to the transition to sustainable practices on farm. What's an example of that kind of system friction? I don't know how you think about it, if there's thematics or just maybe an example of that. And then if there's a company that you can talk about that kind of brings that to life. So we have mapped out thematically what the system frictions are that we're trying to address. One that we spent a lot of time in this year is access to operating capital for farmers looking to transition their land. And that theme, we really leaned into fund managers to lead that charge, whether it was through equity or debt financing, or in general ad tech, Tenacious Ventures is a fund we recently backed, which we're excited about. And then I guess for a company that we went in directly for, we recently backed a company called Quick Organics, which is trying to digitize the organic certification process. Today in the US, that process is completely analog, and we see that as a barrier to entry for farmers looking to transition their practices. And so the, the thesis is that quick makes that process easier and lowers the bar to entry. So hopefully more farmers adopt organic practices along the way. So again, what are those friction points and like, where can we lean in directly um, on technology? And Eliza, how about you? 
For us, an indirect portfolio really gives us diversification, and that's kind of by number of investments. It gives us kind of exposure to what's happening in the asset class more broadly. And so we start to understand what are the trends in food and ag rather than just what are we seeing locally to Sydney or locally in Australia or whatever that might be. And so most of our agri-food portfolio um, is funds, at least at this point. It's a relatively new endeavor for us over the last kind of 12 to 18 months. And so we think about that as geographic diversification, number of companies being diversified, but also expertise around the table for us as we come up the curve here. It's great for us to to be able to call on specific managers. We have a regenerative foods kind of manager. We have a food specific agri-food manager who does less of ag and more on the food side of the chain. Then we have people who specifically work with tech for farmers. And so I think having those people to call on and bounce ideas off is really helpful for us as well. So it's somewhat about bolstering our team because we're only a team of two. And so it's really diversification in many ways for us. Over the period of time that we're going to be investing and partnering with these funds, though, we will co-invest and go direct over time. For us, it's a confidence build thing. This is a new sector for us. And we acknowledge there's a lot to learn. And whenever that's the case, we think partnering with fund managers can be a really learn as you go approach and a better way to get deeper faster rather than sitting behind and spinning your wheels, getting stuck on desk research. And when you're looking at a GP versus a founder, what are some of the different characteristics that you look for or are differences across the two? The main difference is probably that with a founder, we want them to shoot the lights out with almost everything. And so the risk tolerance is super high. That's what doing mostly pre-seed and seed investing in the B2B kind of bucket we'll do later stage for agri-food. But for us, it's that tolerance for risk on the founder side has to be really high. And, and the kind of outcomes that we're underwriting are larger, hence we're looking for that kind of personality type in a founder that we're not looking for in a fund manager. In a fund manager, I want to see like deliberate risk-taking and underwriting of an asset and understanding of what the exit pathways look like, which is quite specific in ag. And so there's a few things we look for that are different, but that's probably the one that bubbles to the top the most to me. Sarah, any thoughts on GPs versus founders? I completely agree with Eliza's assessment. I also think there's a lot of similarities in how you approach the underwriting process I think for funds and for early stage founders, it's understanding product market fit. What are they investing in either from a fund perspective or what are they creating for a company? Is their product market fit for it? Um, Do they have the right team to execute on the strategy and the networks to execute on the strategy? And then is there that chemistry amongst the team and that trusting relationship? And so it's interesting. I think early stage venture versus like private equity, which is a totally different ballgame. It, it, it has a lot of similarities. And that was surprising to me as I transitioned more into a direct investing from the fund space, that it's really team evaluation and skill. Do we fundamentally believe and have trust that both the entrepreneur and fund manager can execute on what they're telling us their goals are? I would say there are experiences that some investors, but not all, ask us things like, how did you and Matthew meet? And have you gotten in a fight? And what are your values? And and things like that, that we think are so critical. Like we spent so much time on that because it's multiple 10-year journeys and that's what we ask our founders and that's just so core to us. And there's a pretty high correlation between people who spend time with us on that versus people who are like, give me the financial statements of the companies from the last two quarters. And that's also super important. It's not the finances aren't important, but what are you really assessing? I think we probably pushed you on this too, Sarah. Every fund we invest in, and this is probably from a legacy of investing in founders, but we try and understand what's the five, 10-year view. What do you want to build here? I mean, every great founder that we back, I think, has a vision that kind of grows over time with success. They feel more confident to tackle a bigger problem and a bigger problem. The problem never gets smaller. It always gets bigger. 
And I think it's the same for fund managers. If you've had success in your region, are you going to go broader? Are you going to go bigger? Or is the ambition to stay the same? And that, that's fine too. But for us, it's important to understand that. And we often get feedback that no one asks that question. And I think we're a GP before we're an LP. And that's why we ask that question. It's like a very long-term relationship. At minimum, it's 10 years. And do you really like each other? <laughs> do you want to be in business together for that long? It's something that Absolutely. we have to get comfortable with. Especially for Matthew and I, just different stages of life, different genders, different nationalities. I'm surprised why more people don't ask that because we're not a typical founding partnership, which is interesting. The other one is that vision question. I would say less than 10% of LPs ask us, what's your vision for the firm? And it's always shocking to me. Maybe it's like we're coming to this fund and so we want you to only focus on this fund, but it seems pretty straightforward that we're not only going to manage one fund because we've got a vision for the space. And at least for us, it's an intervention in agri-food to deliver climate impact. And so that's so core to how we think. But what else do you guys look for in an ag tech fund? It sounded like from what you said, Eliza, there's a kind of software angle. There's definitely a returns angle, geographic diversification. Does sustainability play a role? Does the operating farmland assets you have play a role? Is there a strategic piece? How do you think about those angles? For us, we're really thinking about it from a portfolio construction lens. We're trying to get a number of different kind of exposures that we wouldn't be able to do ourselves. And to some extent, it's less about sustainability for us. And that might be an unpopular answer. It's actually about trying to understand what's going to drive us forward and what forward looks like. And we've just been to RFSI in Denver with Sarah, but that's one piece of it. And it's important to us that we have that represented and we're investors in Trailhead. And we think that's they're excellent in that space. And so for us, we're actually financial return driven before we're impact driven. Impact is, is part of it. But for us, I think the impact is not us trying to define directionally where is ag tech headed, where one small player in this space, but it's trying to direct capital to solutions that we think are going to drive us to a place where we want to go. And so I think it's probably a nuanced view on impact from us. It's not impact first, return second, it's returns first. We think this is a really important part of, of the society we live in and there's big pools of capital and pools of value that are sitting underneath it. And that's what we're trying to attack. And then acknowledging that there are better ways of doing things that we're not currently doing now. So it's important to us to understand how our managers think about impact, how they're working with their companies. We actually were just in an LP day where this caused a bit of friction, where the impact first LPs, they hated an investment and the financial investors love this investment. It's, it's two years old. It'll generate $10 million in revenue next year. It's like in ag tech, I think that's amazing. And the impact investors think it's targeting the whole system, people who are doing things right, i.e. regeneratively in this investor's mind, and also people who aren't. And for me, that's great. It's encouraged behavior that you want and incent make financial incentives to change behavior. And if some people benefit from that who are not transitioning to more sustainable practices. If the goal is to get there and this is one small piece of the puzzle, I think that's great. I probably haven't explained that very well, but I think sometimes those two things can come um, and butt heads. But I think as a financial investor, you take a more system-based approach of can we incentivize behavior, albeit small, that that's better than nothing directionally of where we want to head. We come at it that from a different angle where we are impact first investors in this very specific portfolio. Um, for us, that first filter is, do we see fundamental sustainability impact aligned? How does the fund manager or the technology fit into like our vision of systems change? But then I think in order to move forward with the investment, we have to fundamentally believe that there is room for scale and that there is a strong case for financial return. And so it's not that we're making investments intentionally concessionary, although there are times that we do. I don't think ag tech or venture investing as a space where we actively choose to do that. But 
understanding the potential for scale and where catalytic capital like this pool of capital can come in and either be an anchor investor in a fund or an early check in a, a pre-seed company and kind of that unlocking piece of it is what we think a lot about because ultimately we're trying to influence a shift in the market and agree with you, Eliza, to have systems change, you have to have institutional investors who are willing to come to the table later and making sure that we have clear line of sight for our early participation. What does that mean um, for the market? And we think ad tech is a really interesting place for that to participate. And similar um, to MacDoc, really like that diversification angle. I think where we think a lot about as we're evaluating venture funds is how the fund manager is proposing using the venture funds, the appropriate source of capital for some of these hard tech investments. And do we believe that there's going to be venture-like returns at the end of the day? And so that's where we spend a lot of time understanding portfolio construction is really important, acknowledging that there's going to be some winners and there's going to be some losers, but what are the intentional bets that the fund manager is taking and how are they thinking about how the, the companies that they're investing in are, are tackling key sustainability issues. And then how do you build the portfolio around it to drive ultimately financial returns? I don't mean to disregard the impact side. I think for us, what's most powerful is where you can encourage people to change their behavior based on something that's going to generate them greater bottom line or increase profitability. And whether, for example, that might be changing your practices to become more resilient so that your soil can hold more organic matter in it to then be more profitable in a down season. Like whatever that looks like, I think for us where there's like a lever of profitability or revenue or cost cutting for the farmer or the manufacturer or the processor or whatever part of the chain you're targeting, I think for us that's really powerful and that's where we'll create scaled change. And so that's what we're most excited about and what we try and look for that our managers are looking for. Tell me about observations from especially for you, Eliza, but I think, Sarah, you'd have them too, ag tech versus other sectors. Are you looking for the same kinds of returns? Do you think the exit pathways are the same and are GPs pitching the same exit pathways? Is it like IPOs and it's going to look like software or do you see differences there, different parts of the value chain? I can kick off. I'll talk about exit pathways. This is maybe something we spend at least an hour, maybe more in due diligence with every GP that we've backed. We're like nailing them on what exactly are the exit pathways for your companies exactly who are they do you have relationships with them who in your team has relationships with them how do you manage that do you want them to invest because some of these strategics are also investing so i think to start with exit pathways look very different in agri-food to generalize perhaps they haven't with the kind of boom and bust cycles in the boom it would have looked like indoor farming and all of the alternative meats would have had the same profile as software but i think that's proving not to be true and so for us it's really understanding what are the likely exit pathways and who are the managers that will be more likely to generate those? I think there are some kind of like parallels with actually private equity and agri-food. These are more likely to be M&A outcomes and they're more likely to be from food conglomerates. And so in that case, how do you play nice with them? It's very strategic. They often want to invest early. Do you let that happen? How do you keep them close to the company, but not so close they can do it themselves? I think there are a number of kind of interesting considerations that we try and walk through with some of our GPs, but the main thing is the exit pathways don't look the same. And so if you as a GP can't acknowledge that with me and you're going to tell me it's a NASDAQ IPO for all of your companies, like then it's probably not a fit. It's just not what we believe will be the case. And we don't have enough evidence to support that argument. And so for us, it's looking for people who are really close with the potential acquirers, whether that be from past relationships or sometimes it's from an advisory board 
of people who are very close to the firm who have worked at these places or know the senior people there. And so for us, the exit pathways aren't the same. And I think probably also the time horizon is not going to be the same, but this is a TBC. A lot of our managers are first, second, third time funds. And so we haven't seen very many exits at all. We have one and that was like, to some extent, these kind of M&A outcomes, you never know if it's the right timing. If they had have kept running a bit longer, would that have generated a much better outcome? Who knows, but it is a really good outcome for the company. And so I think that it's early. I think we don't know how long the 10 plus two kind of classic venture fund life cycle. I'm not sure that's actually going to work in agri-food, but that's a TBC. Let's see how that plays out. Yeah, I think Eliza summarized it really well. I think strategic and M&A is going to be the most likely outcome here. I think our biggest question is also the time horizon. I think inherently this is a risk adverse, long sales cycle industry. And so that timing, I think, is going to be one of the greatest challenges. I'll add if a fund manager is still telling me they're going to SPAC companies, it's an automatic no (laughs) for us, like big red flag. And I think we haven't seen a lot of successful exits to date, or we have seen IPOs that have done not so great after the lockup period. And so I'm very skeptical of the IPO markets for this industry. I think strategics or m and is probably the most likely outcome. I think one of the key differences from agri-food tech to some of the hard tech, deep tech stuff is the capital intensity of it. I think, thankfully, agri-food tech seems to be less capital intensive than the deep tech uh, venture space. I think there's some big question marks there on how they're going to be able to capitalize those businesses longer term. I think in the U.S., there's federal support from the grant funding coming out of the IRA there, but I think it's still a big question mark. And so I think the capital intensity and even I'd say that the scientific risk is greater than an agri-food tech, although agri-food tech, you have to wait multiple rowing seasons to prove the thesis. And so it's just a different risk profile with some similarities, but also some pretty big differences. I like that you guys are owning and want GPs to own the exit strategy path. It's definitely something we felt nervous about in fund one. Oh, how much should we own? That really is a big part of our thesis. And it's not the only one. There's definitely category creation plays and paths to hundred million in revenue. And it could be a NASDAQ IPO, but how do we think about the different cases for underwriting and what's that going to look like? One of the questions that can lead to is in terms of portfolio construction, is it going to be power law? And if you're sitting there raising a fund being like, it's not going to be power law and we're a venture fund because we're going to have them kind of thicker middle, how confidently to own that territory. What's your sense of what GPs are saying and what you guys are buying in terms of that answer? It's a really good question. The power law one is probably the hardest question to answer. I think we don't have enough kind of inputs. This is, as I said, a relatively new kind of segment of venture. And so I think for us, it's more about acknowledging the unknowns. Like I'd rather a GP have a kind of in-depth conversation with me where I walk away and go, yeah, that was really thoughtful, or we don't know that piece of the puzzle yet, then GPs brush it under the rug. Of course, this is a traditional venture asset class and we'll have the same structured portfolio. If you take for granted, kind of work through the assumptions that if most M&A outcomes are going to be one to 300 mil, then what does the portfolio look like? at scale. And then I think there's probably, depending on the stage that you invest, the the downside risk looks a little different as well. Like you maybe don't have 15 zeros because these companies have strategic value for somebody. And so again, for me, it comes back to when you underwrite it, do you know at that time who the prospective acquirers or strategic interest might be and how do you engage with that on an ongoing basis? I think if you mitigate the downside, then maybe somewhere returns don't look wildly different, but I don't know. It's all a bit unknown. Sarah, what do you think? No, I I completely agree. I think it's making sure that your GP have realistic expectations and are going in eyes wide open rather than completely optimistic. 
And then I think to your point, Eliza, it's really getting comfortable with their networks and making sure that they're connected to the right folks to help facilitate those conversations from the very beginning is a really important piece. And I agree with your earlier point that like having strategics involved from the beginning is like a very fine line to walk, but it's really important to ultimately successful outcomes as well. I would love to get into some nitty gritty of how it works to raise a fund from LPs. So tell me what's your due diligence process? Like roughly how long does it take? Who makes the decisions? If I was qualifying you as an investor and trying to understand how do you make decisions? What does it look like? Give me that overview. So I will stipulate that we are in our pilot year of this particular impact first food and ag portfolio. And so I think our process has evolved over time, Sarah, and hopefully has sped up in some ways as we figured out our thesis. So we have a very standard institutional process now of how we evaluate it. The other thing that we do is we run our endowment, which is very institutional. So we've taken a lot of those best practices for underwriting our fund investments. So we have a two-step investment process. Uh, The first is we socialize the idea with our investment committee. Typically, we source and we evaluate either a pitch deck and decide if we want to take an intro call with the fund manager and how it fits into our thesis. If the intro call goes well, we'll move forward with diligence, kind of lighter diligence to bring it to our IC1, which again is socializing the idea with the committee. If we get the green light from them, then we will kick off full-blown due diligence. Really, we have a standard DDQ framework that we have to answer for any investment opportunity that we look at that evaluates both the impact and financial return. We then write a very long investment memo. It's about 20 pages long. And then we present it for IC2 for final decision-making. And from there, assuming it gets green-lighted, we will do a legal review, which takes a couple of weeks, negotiate terms, background checks, all that good operational due diligence stuff. And then we'll fund or close on the investment and fund. I think the fastest we can get through diligence from like intro to you are getting your check is probably a quarter because we hold these monthly ICs. And I think in a best case scenario, it's a quarter. It definitely bleeds longer than that, just because we have to get comfortable with each opportunity. Uh, And then the last thing I'll add is we often like to do site visits too. Easier when they're closer geographically for us than Australia. But for us, it's really important to try to get in the room with folks to get that dynamic. And it's something I think that we've adjusted our process during COVID, but still fundamentally believe that getting FaceTime with our partners is really important. So we try to do that, particularly if there are physical assets involved, really getting on the ground and seeing those assets is really important. Eliza, how about you? What's the process look like with MacDoc? So similarly in pilot year, I think is a good way to describe where we're at, although Sarah, your pilot year has been massive. Congratulations. We are, as I said, a team of two. And so it's slightly lighter weight for us, just from a capacity perspective. So we take a 45 minute intro call. We try to make that with all GPs. Most funds don't do that. And I really think it's a terrible thing. Putting one partner in front of a team to make a one first impression that you only get once. It's just a real waste of time, I think. I understand fundraising is hard, but use the opportunities that you have to convert. And so where there's everybody's on the first call, it's much easier for us. It speeds up our process. If not, then that's step two. And then we go into data room, classic, similarly fill out a due diligence questionnaire, except we only have one IC. And that's really after my colleague and I are both at kind of conviction. It's really just making sure we haven't missed anything and that we're feeling a strategic need. And this is probably an aside, but I think interesting. As you start to make first check, second check, it's very easy. Once you have a portfolio of managers adding 
one more manager. So that portfolio has to represent a different network or a different theme or a different kind of set of companies. And so there is like this incremental kind of portfolio balance question that we have to ask now that we didn't have to ask 12 months ago, that is actually quite hard. And like an internal factor for us that I think many GPs just aren't aware of. They're like, oh, we're, we're great. We're a great fund doing agri-food. And I'm like, yes, but I've already got a portfolio of them. Like, how do you fit in that portfolio? And so that's a piece of the puzzle that comes towards the end as well. Like we get conviction on the team and we look at kind of past portfolios to the extent that we can in emerging manager portfolios and then kind of work through our IC process. For us, it's probably if you really pushed me and I wasn't doing direct deals at the same time, I could probably get it done in four weeks, but more likely is probably six-ish weeks just to get through all of the steps of the process. Are you ever not working on two deals at the same time or more? <laughs> so this is the like hardest part for ag managers when they deal with me is I have to prioritize direct deals, right? They have a finite time horizon. You're competing with other people. It, it rises to the top of my pile. And then I'm like, oh, I'll just go on next close or I'll just do it next week. Oh, it's a really hard juggle. In other words, managers have to be persistent with me as I'm like trying to juggle priorities. It's just really challenging to create scarcity. The kind of tools in the toolkit on the founder side, it's, you know, this customer deal is going to close or we're going to run out of money or there's just like more good and bad reasons to create that urgency. Is there anything that works for you guys that you've seen fund managers do to create urgency or get you guys to move faster, prioritize more, help more? I think for us, it's with the emerging manager piece, it's honesty. If we're getting the first close, tell me why it matters if I'm part of this first close because if you don't tell me why it matters you're just not going to rise in my priority list it's really just a relationship driven thing which is again much harder than a founder who can say I've got a term sheet move now or you're going to be left behind I think some funds try to use close dates and I don't love it when people say it's one and done close or like often it's not or like when they overstate where they're at relative to their fundraise that also doesn't work and you just you back solve this stuff with reference calls and it just doesn't work well so for me it's really just the only tool you have is honesty and we're an emerging manager. Like we're very comfortable supporting emerging managers. We understand the problems of getting to first close. We know like roughly where you want to sit at first close as a percentage of total. Like these are things that we know and we're happy to talk through with our managers, but not many people do that. I think you don't want to show weakness to LPs or at least that's the perception. But I think ultimately it's a partnership and we should be trying to help each other. So that's really it for me. If we think about it similarly, it's because we also have an emerging manager program and really want to be catalytic with this portfolio. And so having that honest conversation of how our check can help that manager achieve something or be catalytic to bring in other investors will help prioritize the fund in our pipeline. At the end of the day, we're also a very lean team. So we're often triaging and trying to constantly reshift priorities depending on tiny needs. So having that open, honest conversation is super important to us. And similarly to Eliza, not being honest or like pushing weird deadlines doesn't help the case. And I think it like builds distrust of what else are you telling me that might not be true? I think um, it sounds so silly. It sounds like so trite, but you'd be shocked how often this happens. We're closing tomorrow. You and you're out. You're like, no, can't get there. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and oftentimes they don't close, which is fun to see. But I think the other thing, um, because we are really supportive of emerging managers, uh, a, a tactic that doesn't really work for us is offering fee reductions for us. It's great and it argues against ourselves, but like we really want to see our emerging managers set up for success. Um, and so while we appreciate the generous offer, like we want to make sure that managers are properly incentivized and are able to survive off management fees. And so for us, we often get, do you want a management fee reduction or even a GP stake? 
and neither are really attractive offers <laughs> to us mm-hmm. to get to, to get us move faster. How do you think about that for founders? We like it or hate it, believe they have to be good at fundraising because if they are not good at fundraising, then they don't give themselves the opportunity to continue to build their amazing technology and team and impact and returns. Do you think that fund managers need to be good at raising? And I found that it it seems like VCs are more willing to help founders raise, but after the first round, because the first round you're still figuring out, is this a good investment? But then once you're in the tent, you're like all hands on deck. Whereas LPs, it's been pretty variable in who's willing to roll up their sleeves and why. And I wonder if it's because they are nervous that we're not good at fundraising or it's just not part of the playbook or they're busy or whatever. What do you guys think? Do GPs need to be good at raising? Is that something you assess for? I do think it's important that GPs are good at fundraising, but I think first-time funds or second-time funds are really, really hard. And we acknowledge that as a dynamic. And so I think as long as we see the GPs kind of pounding the pavement, doing everything they can to fundraise, we're happy to step in and be catalytic if we've gained conviction and, and committed to the fund and trying to be a good partner to them. That's been our approach and we do as much as our time allows us to do. But I think there have been instances where we've seen GPs who it's clear that they're actively not good at fundraising and that has come out through the diligence process and we've put pencils down um, because of that observation. So I have a portfolio of like generalist seed stage managers in the US. I've seen some terrible fundraisers who have lasted a very long time based on performance. And they obviously have some good relationships because they continue to fundraise. But I think it's important to make the point, like fundraising does not equal making good investments. I think for a founder, the argument is to me much stronger. You can fundraise well, you can tell your story well, you can hire well. There's many more pieces to the founder puzzle than I think to the LP, GP puzzle. So for me, sure, I found 100% you need to be good at it. If I'm being a little bit controversial, I'm not sure you need to be great at it from a fund manager perspective. For me though, I have put pens down at somebody who's terrible at fundraising, who just wouldn't answer a single one of my questions. We spent a 45 minute intro call. I asked a question. He said, that's a bad question. And, and I answered a question that he wanted to ask. Like t- terrible. Like for me, it's a relationship manner. Like it's, it's a game of relationships. And if I can't engage with you for 45 minutes without pulling my hair out, then you're not just a bad fundraiser. We're not a fit for you. So I think there's like many kind of pieces of the puzzle. And I can think of some VC funds that are excellent at fundraising whose returns are subpar. And then the opposite can also be true. And I don't think either one necessarily guarantees success. And I think that somewhat gives me an existential crisis about venture capital, but that's probably a topic for a whole other conversation. <laughs> I think that's like, ultimately they should be good at it, but not everybody is. And to yeah. me, more important is the relationship you build. Obviously impact and returns in whatever order are key. What else is in the top five that you look for? Like quality of communications and reporting or portfolio construction or co-investment opportunities or what else makes the list? And is there anything that um, maybe GPs don't think makes the list, but that often does? I think for us, right to win is like something we do spend time on. Like it is an increasingly busy market from a capital perspective. And so are there historical examples or if we project out into the future, what's your right to win and being specific can be enough. Being the regenerative agriculture fund can be sufficient to give you a right to win. But if we kind of work through three to five years, what what does that look like rather than just looking static point in time? 
today. And then for us, the whole point of this is extensions of our team globally around the world who are great at what they do. And so we need a willingness to engage. And it, some funds we have monthly catch-ups with, but most we do quarterly. And that requires some effort from our managers to engage with us, but hopefully that becomes a more fruitful relationship for both sides over time. And so how you perceive your LPs is something I really dig on in the due diligence process that I don't actually think GPs expect. What does a great LP relationship look like is a question I ask all of our GPs and most GPs are like, huh, you're the first person to ask me that. I'm like, how is this possible? Like, how do people not care about this? I think everybody cares. We just skirt around the issue. Right. I think I agree with your list completely. I think on the financial side, we spend a lot of time thinking about portfolio construction and the process varies whether or not it's first time fund that doesn't have portfolio companies yet versus established portfolio, understanding winning and leading rounds, valuation and discipline and getting really comfortable on those dynamics, particularly with venture portfolios is important. And then I think similarly to Eliza, engaging with us and your willingness to engage is really important because in this portfolio, we are trying to get market observations to help feed our future investments. And so see this really as a true partnership. And so really trying to understand, are you willing to have quarterly calls with us? Or can I pick up the phone and call you or send you deal flow and vice versa? If it's not a fit for us, but maybe a fit for you. And then I think also on the engagement piece, because we're so focused on impact, that's a really important part of the evaluation process, but also as we're lifting up the hood on the operations of the firm, really understanding a lot of their ESG policies is really important. And I don't think we expect our partners to be perfect or everything buttoned up, but be willing to engage with us on what our expectations are and how we would like to see you evolve as a firm over time and help contribute to that learning process. And then I think reporting is always important because <laughs> we want to know how, how the portfolio is performing, but with emerging funds, a lot of that is a bit TBD, but getting a flavor for what we can expect is, is important in the diligence mm-hmm. process. That piece has surprised me a little bit, if I'm honest, that in talking about fund one, especially almost all of our LPs were like, I want to learn from you guys. That's why we're backing you. Obviously it's returns and impact, but they want to hear our insights and understand how we think and those kinds of things. And then attendance at some of our LP events or like uh, reading the reports and things, we always get phone calls or people asking like, what about this? And we're like, it was in the report, but maybe we did it wrong. And so we think a lot about, is that us? Should we do it differently? What do you guys see in terms of kind of best practice for sharing that information? Or is it like everyone's busy and that's just life, the bar is going to be high and then life happens and you can only process so much information. So I think The best I've seen it done is a fund manager who holds a quarterly LP update call. And hopefully that limits the number of calls the GP has to make with individual LPs. And they do a a market update. What's been happening in the portfolio? What are some things they're excited about? And I think it was just like a really neat way. And they send the quarterly letter out ahead of time and the report and then it's a dedicated time to get eyeballs on the report um, and hopefully limit some of that frustration from the GP perspective of we are giving you this information, but it's like the live voiceover and opportunity to have some Q&A without having individual calls with all of your LPs. So I, I've really appreciated that GP's approach to communication. This is truly menial, but it's really important to me. Is I think we're overwhelmed with forms of communication. If I think about the many inboxes that I have, it, it, it's getting out of control and my email inbox standalone is out of control. And so for me, firms that give their update in an email 
are 100% going to get read. Every word I'm going to read, I'm going to pour over it. But firms that use a portal, which is too many, firms that use a portal that I have to click on that then opens a PDF that like looks crappy on my phone and is very hard to read. Like I'm going to read it, but I'm not going to read 100% of the words that I'm going to remember. It's just my favorite fund uses Carter for NAVs and everything else is on email. And for me, I read everything. I know exactly what's happening with this fund at all times. It's great. I think ops is a like hard topic for managers. Like it's something you don't want to spend too much time on. And same with these kind of LP calls, like quarterly is a lot. We think twice a year is great. That's enough. I don't want you spending two weeks prepping for an LP call. If you're going to do that four times a year, like for me, it's a time thing that like, I might want something different to the person next to me. And so how productive is it to get everybody on the call, listening to something that maybe not everybody is interested in, but I do think there's something to be said for putting words in an email or in someone's preferred format. And I just think as a society, we're not there yet. Like someone likes to be called, someone likes to be texted, someone likes to be WhatsApped, someone likes to be emailed. I I just wish we'd optimize this a little bit better for like flow of information, but that's probably a more macro problem too. Any last advice for GPs, whether they come flooding into your inbox after this podcast or just generally approaching you? Top tip to finish? It's the same as founders, like a warm intro is going to do you wonders. And even funds that we've said no to, I would rather read them introducing me to somebody than a cold reach out. And I I know that's hard. It's the same as founders. Everybody hates this advice, but I think it's like, how do you rise to the top of the inbox? Either you're super relevant or you can find a relevant connection. And for me, that relevant connection is broad. I'm not trying to be hard to approach. I'm honestly just trying to get you prioritized ahead of whatever else I have to do that day because I'm spinning US generalist, US agri-food, global agri-food, Aussie, New Zealand directs. Like there's a lot going on. And so to rise to the top, cut through the noise, there's really only one way. I agree. Warm intros. And then I also think similar like with directs, it's like making sure it's a qualified lead is really important. And doing your research as a GP to make sure that your strategy is actually relevant to the LP you're approaching. I know that is often challenging with family offices, but I think both of our offices are fairly public at this point. And so there's ways to figure out if your strategy is a good fit for us. And I think it's much appreciated because I think if it's not, you're often not going to get any form of response because of just how inundated our inboxes get. Last one, if you can teach me something, I'm pretty likely to take a call. My chat with Eliza and Sarah has my head spinning about tweaks I can make to how we fundraise and ideas to help founders raise. But I wanna come back to three big takeaways. First, I appreciate the discussion about the relationship between returns and impact. On the surface, it might seem like MacDoc and builders come at this question from opposite directions. But our theory of change is that in agri-food especially, it can be both. Companies that tap into incentives can get to scale, and that means they can deliver impact. So when we think about a quote-unquote trade-off between impact and returns, we challenge that these ideas aren't mutually exclusive, especially in this space. It does create a challenge for GPs, though, at times, and for founders, because of the need to present different perspectives to different stakeholders, say, an impact-forward deck and presentation versus a returns-oriented one, when, in reality, we believe they go strongly hand-in-hand. Navigating that context switching without feeling like you're undermining your own values can definitely be tricky. Second, I really appreciated the points raised by both Eliza and Sarah about the similarities and differences in assessing GPs versus founders, from risk tolerance to how fundraising skills do and don't correlate to successful commercial outcomes. 
In the venture world, fundraising is so key, yet it's not always correlated with being able to build a great product or make great investments. And I liked what Sarah said about product market fit. This concept applies for both startups and for funds. Lastly, I loved hearing different perspectives around the reasons LPs choose to make direct investments in startups versus partner with funds. While a startup investment represents a conviction bet against a specific idea or team, a fund can offer insights and access to a range of thematics, effectively scaling an LP's team and supercharging the rate of learning. And ultimately for me, whether I'm on the raising or investing side of the table, I come back to one of my biggest takeaways of this whole conversation, that so much of this work comes down to relationships and honesty. It's easy to get caught up in trying to sell, but it's really truer than many people believe at every level of fundraising and investing. It's about the people and the relationships. For now, that's it for this episode of AgTech So What? Thanks again to Eliza and Sarah for joining us and for all of you on social media who sent questions ahead of time. Hopefully they were answered. For more information on any of the resources mentioned in this podcast, please visit our website, tenacious.ventures. Thanks for listening. I'm Sarah Nolette. Catch you next time.